The scripture for today's sermon comes from Genesis 1, 26 through 31. The word of God speaks to us. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. This is God's word to us. Good morning. It's good to be with everybody. Uh, my name is Dave, one of the pastors here at Frontline Church in Edmond. And uh, today is a, a special day um, because first and foremost, it's Jimmy Green's birthday who, who played bass today. Jimmy's awesome. It also uh, happens to be the, if my math is right, the ninth birthday of Frontline Church as a congregation in Edmond. And so I'm really thankful to be, yeah, that's fun. Um, I forgot until like two days ago, and I was like, wait a minute. This is the ninth birthday of our congregation. So I want to, as we pray, I haven't done this in a minute, and so I want you to pray for me. I'm going to pray for you. We always do that. But as we pray, I want us to also give thanks to God for his continual grace and faithfulness to us as a congregation over these last nine years and, uh, and pray that he would continue to, to show us that grace and faithfulness. So let's pray with one another and uh, for one another in gratitude to our Heavenly Father as we continue to dig in and prepare our hearts to study the book of Genesis this morning. So let's pray. You're so good to us, God. And you've, you've been so faithful as we've sung that you never let us down, that, that you pursue us, that even in our suffering that's not purposeless, but you're working in us and through us to form us and mature us, building us hope. And as we carry burdens in this morning, we pray that we would be able to, to lay them down, even in these coming moments, at your feet, God, knowing that you care for us. And you're faithful. You've been faithful to us as a church for, for nine years here in Edmond, and, and we thank you for that faithfulness that we have so much to be grateful for, so many good gifts, and we pray that you would continue to give us good gifts this morning on this birthday of ours in a real way. And we pray that you would give us the gift of insight by the power of your spirit to the scripture, that you would help me help all of us speak in a way that you're lifted up, Jesus, and we see the beauty of uh, who you are, God, and what that means for us. We pray this in your name, God's people said. Amen. All right, the title of the article is Stop Using Animal Names for Insults Urges Charity. Stop Using Animal Names for Insults Urges Charity. Um, 
This is a real article. It's not like a Babylon Bee satire. I checked. I double, I triple checked. The article reads, animal rights organization PETA has called for the public to stop using animal names as derogative terms. It says calling people names such as rat, chicken, and snake perpetuates oppression and thinks it's unfair on animals when their names are used as human behaviors. In a Twitter thread, PETA said, words can create a more inclusive world or perpetuate oppression. Calling someone an animal as an insult reinforces the myth that humans are superior to other animals. Stand up for justice by rejecting supremacist language. They go on to say, anti-animal slurs degrading animals by applying negative human traits to certain species. Perpetuating the idea that animals are sly, dirty, or heartless desensitizes the public and normalizes violence against other animals. We might not be smoking meat at the men's event if this is true. <laughs> Specious language isn't just harmful, but it's also inaccurate. Pigs, for instance, are intelligent and lead complex social lives and, and show empathy for other pigs in distress. Snakes are clever have family relationships, and prefer to associate with other relatives. So does the mafia. They do all those things. That doesn't make it good. <laughs> PETA then also supplied the super awesome uh, graphic to help, which is, is, I think is wonderful. Instead of saying chicken, say coward. Instead of saying rat, say snitch, which I actually agree with. That's more fun. It's like, stop snitching on your brother, I say to my kids. Uh, instead of snake, say jerk. Instead of pig, say repulsive, which I think is hurtful. Um, <laughs> just imagine going to my son, your room is not a pigsty. Your room is repulsive. I feel like that would wound him in deeper ways. And uh, instead of sloth, say lazy. So you can do with that as you will. Um, that, that article, I didn't even look for it. That just came to me this week, and I felt like it was a gift from the Lord to help us enter in to discussing some big things this morning. In all seriousness, the questions we're asking is, is there anything special about being human? Do people have a unique place in all of creation? Or, like, like this organization is holding out, is that just a myth and people aren't any different than anything else in all of creation? What does it mean to be human? What does it mean to even exist? How do we view the world that we live in and our lives? How do we view other people? Genesis gives us answers to these questions. When we're Getting into the series as a church, rediscovering our origin story, big questions have incredible rich answers, and it all begins with God. The answer that we get in Genesis 1 that we're going to explore today is that humans are unique because we are made in the very image of God. So we're going to explore this in, in three ways, three things that we need to see this morning. First, being made in God's image means that we are made to reflect God. Being made in God's image means that we are made to reflect God. Let's go back to, to Genesis chapter 1, look at verse 26. And then, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all of the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. 
This passage here, theologians are going to say, is is the crescendo of the the creation narrative, the the summit of where all of Genesis in a real way in creation, the creation story, is headed to this moment. In fact, verse 27 is, is the very first moment in all of Scripture that we have poetry in Scripture, as though the Genesis narrative can't help but like break out into to an overflow because what is happening is so wonderful in this moment. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Nothing else in the universe is made in the image of God. That's what's unique about people. Only women, only men, humanity, unique in all of creation is made in God's image. The reality of this, theologians call the Imago Dei because it sounds smart to say. It's Latin for the image of God. It's fun to say the Imago Dei. If I say on accident the Imago Dei in this sermon, I just mean the image of God. So what does it mean for humans to be made in the image of God? Well, for one, it means since we're made in God's image, it does in a real profound, purposeful way set us apart from everything else, every other creature in all creation. See, as we've been reading Genesis 1, as Chad took us through last week, there was this rhythm, this order, this cadence, and as God was making creation, and specifically the the creatures of the earth, there was this cadence where God would make things according to what? According to their kind. That phrase, according to their kind, it appears something like 10 times in Genesis chapter 1. And it points out the reality that that even though other creatures are unique in their characteristics and diversity, there's some obvious similarities and groupings, as if like a template or a mold is used. So there's all types of different fish, but they're all recognizable as fish, and they can go together. They're all different kinds of birds, but they're all obviously birds, with maybe some few exceptions, penguins and such. There There are different predators, there are different livestock, but they can easily be grouped together according to their kind. So when we look at the, all of creation, we can see these, these groups, these molds, a pattern. But, but something happens As we read Genesis 1 and we come upon our verses today, when God creates man, something unique happens, and it calls us to stop and take notice. I was talking to my friend Dave Smith today, who's serving right now, and and Dave was saying when he first became a Christian, he went and bought a Bible, and he was like, well, you read a book from the beginning. And so he turns to Genesis, and he starts reading, and he's like reading through. This is good stuff. And he came upon this very verse we're coming at today. And the Holy Spirit led him to slow down and it just struck him in a profound way. And that's how the Holy Spirit wrote Genesis. To, for that to happen in each and every one of us, something unique, something profound is happening here. We must slow down. Man is not made like anything else in all creation. If there was a mold with, with man, God's breaking that mold here. In fact, God gives man authority over creation because man is what? Made in God's image. Notice the change that takes place compared to the rest of the creation account as we read. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. See, we get a sense that something special is happening because the language changes and, and God begins to speak 
with himself, to himself. There's a a divine self-dialogue, as some theologians put it, that God is engaging in. On the very first page of the Bible, we're getting here a glimpse of the beauty of the Trinity, the triune God. One God, three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. We saw earlier in Genesis that the Spirit was present in creation, participating fully, hovering over the surface of the waters. And the rest of the Bible helps us understand that that the Son of God was foundational and fully involved in creation. Just one example, John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him was made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. And so what's happening here in these verses is our triune God is is beginning in, in the apex of his creativity, the summit of his creativity to make man in God's image. Humanity is made in God's image, reflecting him uniquely in all creation. That's a foundational truth of scripture. And, and that means there's something that we ought to consider that's profound for our everyday life. If you set out to see the wonders of the world, if you had an unlimited budget and a charge to go take on the, the most glorious things in creation, and you stood with your toes on the edge of the Grand Canyon, and you took in that great chasm. If you could take a trip and sail and swim through the Great Barrier Reef, and snorkel and scuba, and take in the wonders of the glory of, of that aspect of creation. If you could fly through the mist of Victoria Falls in Africa, and take a helicopter ride, and take in the beauty and the majesty of those boundaries that God laid in place. If you could even just take on some kind of technology that would allow you to fly a hundred times the speed of light and you could fly out into the wonders of the universe and you could swim in a whirlpool galaxy. If you could climb the pillars of creation, if you could be there for the birth of a star, passing out cigars, it's a girl celebrating, right? If you could do all of that and take in all of that wonder, if you could travel all through our world, even by some miracle, travel through the expanse of our universe and see all of that wonder, what our verse today tells us, this truth, that even if you saw all of that wonder, none of that wonder would compare to the wonder of the person sitting next to you. The greatest wonder in all of creation is a person because that person is made in the very image of God. That person is eternal. When all that wonder of the universe passes away, that person, you, live on forever. So this this means something for how we go about life, how we view ourselves, how we view others. Every human deserves dignity. Because every human bears the image of God. Every human is worthy of of value and respect. People of every race and of every ethnicity are made in the image of God equally and fully and demand honor and dignity and equal rights. Children yet to be born who are in their mother's womb are made in the image of God and deserve full protection and value and worth. 
People who are seriously ill are image bearers of God and deserve every avenue of care and honor. People who are mentally challenged or disabled are image bearers of God and as such they're precious. Elderly people who our culture increasingly dishonors deserve vast and full honor because they are made in the image of God. Middle school boys. And girls in junior high who are navigating the gauntlet of adolescence are image bearers of God who deserve dignity and kindness. This affects how we view ourselves. The Bible says regardless of where you've been, what you've done, you are made in God's image as a person. And that means that you have value, you have worth. Not because of your capacity, not because of what you do, because how God made you. What C.S. Lewis, we're going to see earlier, calls a weight of glory. Genesis chapter 1, when it comes to the image of God, just speaks a truth into the lie, shines light into the darkness. That, that There's this modern creation narrative that says that you're an accident. That you're just a puddle of primordial ooze that came about because of, of total chance. And then you somehow, because you are an accident, have the weight of trying to determine your own purpose, your own identity. And into that lie, Genesis speaks and says, no, you're made in the image of God. You're not some orphan from an accidental universe. You were made to be a child of God. And God gives you your purpose. God gives you your identity. The reality of the image of God changes how we see others. Because if we're honest, <laughs> the target of our disdain, our disgust, our frustration, our sinful anger, what bothers and what annoys us most of the time is other people. This is why Jesus' little brother, James, wrote this to the early church in James chapter 3. He says, with it, speaking of the tongue, with it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing, my brothers, these things ought not be so. So to, to, to disdain, to curse, to gossip, to dishonor, to bowed-mouth people made in God's image is simply bad theology. It's not seeing the world as it is. It's not seeing people as who they are. C.S. Lewis, in his, in his writing, The Weight of Glory, in light of the image of God, he says this, there are no ordinary people. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, art, civilizations, these are mortal, and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. He goes on to say, this does not mean that we are to be perpetually solemn. We must play, but our merriment must be of the kind which exists between people who have, from the outset, taken each other seriously. So the question that the Imago Dei demands of us, the image of God demands of us, is do we take people seriously? Every person that comes across our path, according to God's word, is made in the image of God. Do we take them seriously? From the leaders we seek to support and elect to the family who lives on our block, 
be it our, our family that we live with to the person who cuts us off in traffic, from the newly formed child in the womb of her mother to the, to the person in poverty asking for a dollar on the street. As we see people, our eyes must be open to the reality of the image of God that is reflected in them. It's the first thing that we need to see. The second is being made in the image of God means we're made to represent God. Look at Genesis 1.28 again. And God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And the challenge I have is that I have heard that verse in some way, shape, or form for coming up on, you know, 40 plus years. And so it doesn't strike me like it should and and must have struck the original hearers of Genesis. See, in the ancient Near East, the, the term and the idea image of God existed, but it was very select as to who it applied to. It's, it applied to royalty. It applied to, to kings. It was reserved for rulers. In, the, in ancient thought, a king ruled alongside and on behalf of their God. This was especially true in Egypt, where the people of God had just spent decades upon decades upon decades of slavery, generations of slavery. And so they had been inoculated. They had, they had been oppressed in a system that said, yeah, there is somebody who's made in the image of God. It's Pharaoh. He rules over you. He has value. He's a bridge between the divine and the earth. And you are nothing. You're just a slave. You have no value or worth. But Genesis shines a light into that darkness and, and says, hey, there." There is one true God, and he's not represented by kings. He's represented by everyone. He's represented by you. You're made in his image, not just royalty, you. Everyone was made to rule under God's authority, representing the one true, true God. So God's saying, hey, you rule in goodness like me. You bring order. You bring beauty. You bring justice. You bring kindness. Your life has deep, meaningful significance because you represent God like royalty, like a, like a vice regent on this earth. So go about living in a way, the charge says from God, to fill the earth with beauty that, that a good God made you and you're to, to live out and reflect his goodness. Humans are designed to rule creation under the rule of God, not to exploit the earth, but, but like a gardener cultivates a garden to cultivate God's creation, to, to steward resources for the good of others, for the good of the earth, and for the glory of God. In light of this fact, King David was moved to write in worship and poetry, Psalm chapter 8, verse 3. He says, when I look at the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon, the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. This is one important thing that that representing God means for us. There's lots of implications for this. We're going to talk more about it even next week. But, But here's one takeaway for today. Worship is not just singing on Sundays. Like, 
I had a, a really good time singing with y'all this morning. Thank you, Bailey and team, by the way. That was amazing. But, but worship is to reflect God rightly in the world in, in all that we do. That you can proclaim Christ as cornerstone, not just in harmony with brothers and sisters in Christ on the Sunday morning. You can proclaim Christ as cornerstone living in harmony with a spouse. You can, you can resound in worship, not just together on a Sunday morning in voice, but you can resound in worship about how you go about work on a Monday morning. You can resound in worship with how you raise your kids or how you live out your singleness or how you serve a neighbor, how you throw a birthday party. Being made in the image of God means that all life is meant to be worship as we represent God in all we do. So in light of that, consider an important area of your life right now and just think, as I'm an image bearer of God, how am I representing God in my parenting or in my work? And maybe the Holy Spirit right now wants to really deeply encourage you. Maybe convict you and praise God for that. Third thing and final thing we need to see, being made in the image of God means we're made to rely on God. If, if you begin to read this account, it's striking just how generous God is. He's giving life. He's giving, he's giving a, a purpose with dominion and, and order. He's, he's giving sustenance. He's giving food. He's giving man everything that we need. And to, to see being made in the image of God rightly means that, that we need to be struck with humility. It's humbling to be made in the image of God because we're made in the image of God. He's God, we're not. We're the reflection in a real way. We're not the substance itself. We're more reliant on him. The illustration that has always stuck with me, thanks to Pastor Tim Keller, is the illustration of a mirror. And there's lots of illustrations you hear about what this means to be made in the image of God, maybe statues or paintings. But, but I like the mirror, and it's always uh, helped me understand and grasp and wrap my mind and my heart around what this means. Because like, like a mirror faces the sun and reflects that light in a real way when God makes women and men in his image, that's the call, that we are to face God And as we face God, we reflect his light. We were created to face God. And as we face him, his light reflects into all creation through all we do. And so like a a mirror is dependent on light to reflect, we're dependent on him to shine in life, to reflect his glory. He's the source of our weight and our importance and our substance. So when we choose to ignore God's royal call to to live out life as his representatives in this world, in a real way, it's like a mirror turning from light into darkness and then hoping to reflect something. It's, It's impossible. But since our first mom and dad, Adam and Eve, ran from God and turned away from him, that's what we've all chosen to do. And we all, like mirrors, have turned away from the light that we were created to reflect, and then we choose to try to image other things. Instead of being made in the image of God, we try to, to live our lives made in the image of something else. We're all, as, as Emerson wrote, worshipers. We all worship something. 
And the tragedy of that is when we turn from God, who we were made to reflect, and we, we try to image something else, we face something else with our life, we worship some created thing over the creator in a tragic way. We don't, we don't lose God's image in our life, as J.I. Packard helps us understand. He, he wrote in Concise Theology, we retain the image structurally in the sense that our humanity is intact, but not functionally. For now we are sin slaves and unable to use our powers to mirror God's holiness. And so, for instance, if we, if we turn from facing God to get our identity, our purpose, our significance, and we, we turn to money or stuff, we're turning from light to darkness and, and that image is warped. And the real tragedy is, is we start to become in a, in a broken way like what we worship. And so when we worship money, we become transactional, yet we never have enough. Or we, we, we worship beauty or fitness and health, and we never look good enough or feel good enough, and we always feel ugly. Or we worship power and influence, and in a real way, the tragedy is we always feel weak. We worship safety, and and we feel afraid. We worship accomplishment or intellect, and we feel insecure or stupid. We worship another person, a spouse, a friend, a child, and we crush them with the weight of trying to put on them our worth, our value, our significance. Ecclesiastes 7.29 says, God made man to be virtuous, but they have each turned and followed their own downward path. So what do we do? There's this amazing moment the night before Jesus died where he's, he's speaking to his friends, his disciples. And Jesus says, I'm the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. And one of the disciples, Philip, he asked a question that I probably would ask, any of us would have asked. Philip says, Lord, show us the Father, and that's enough for us. We're talking about seeing God. Help, help us see Father God. Show him to us, Jesus. And Jesus says this. Have I been with you so long that you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show me the Father? See, Jesus is saying, I am the perfect image of God. You want to see God, Philip? You've been seeing God every day as you followed me. I'm the son of God. You see him. You, you see God as you, you see me. If you really want to see God, you just have to look to Jesus. The Apostle Paul wrote this to, to the early church in his uh, third letter to the Corinthians. In, in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, he says, But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of God, are being transformed, listen, are behold, the glory of God. We are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. And this comes from the Lord who is spirit. I think what Paul's saying here is, look, 
We're made in the image of God. That's how we are created, but we've turned from him. We've, we've tried to reflect other things, and that image is dulled. And as a result, we're, we're covered. We're, there's a veil over us. We're, we're not living in the light of God. We, we live in death. We're not living in the life of God. But when we, by the grace of God, experience salvation, it's like that veil is being removed And we can see light for the first time, not darkness. We can see truth, not lies. But but in God's grace, we turn to Jesus and the veil is lifted. We can see, once again, significance and, and, and power that comes when we face our Lord and King Jesus. We're reflecting once again the, the image of God because we're, we're facing and reflecting the Son of God, Jesus. And, and when that happens, as we, we face him, we love him, we follow him, we believe on him for significance and life and purpose, the Spirit works in us and begins to restore the image of God in us so we can live in his light now and forever. So if you're not a Christian this morning, I would just invite you to to listen to what God is saying. That that you are made unique. You're not an accident. You don't have to, to drum up or find your own purpose or your identity. It was imprinted upon you from the very beginning. And you were made to reflect God. And if you face anything, if, if, if you give your life to anything besides him, it's, it's a waste. You're going to lose life. But when you face Jesus, the image of God, how you were made, that is, that is restored. That's where real life, that's where real light, that's where real truth is found. That's what it really means to be human. And if you're in Christ... We get to celebrate that the, the perfect image of God, Christ Jesus, his body was given, his blood was shed for us. And we can pray that, that the spirit will continue to work in us from one degree of glory to the next to make us continue to reflect and represent and rely on him. Let's stand and pray. Heavenly Father, we, we ask that as a people, we would first and foremost see you more rightly. That you're not holding out on us. That you're not unfair or distant or disengaged. But from the beginning and now and forever, that you are good, that you are generous, that you know us through and through as a good father, and that your desire for us is to have not just life, but full, abundant life. So we pray that we would see ourselves rightly in light of that. And we pray that we would see others with our eyes open to view and celebrate and honor and value the image of God. And that you would work in and through us like you did the early church, that as, as we go about that reality and live in the light of that reality, that, that we would shine a light into the darkness and, and glorify you. We pray this, Jesus.